key verses in chapter 9. It's about the healing of the blind man, the interrogation of the man born blind, and the uh, faith of the man born blind. The key verses I'm going to read are in chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. This is the Pharisees interrogating him. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. Moving on to verse 37, 38. The blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to realize the biases of our hearts. Are we committed to Christ? Or are we committed against Christ? Do we hear your word this morning with hard hearts and dismiss it easily in spite of the evidence that is right before us? And Father, even if we are committed to Christ, we have our old nature that raises its ugly head and would lead us away, lead us to doubt, lead us to despair, would dismiss our Savior because our old nature just wants to do what it wants to do. Father, lead us in your word right now to Christ. Let us see the evidence that he is who he said he is. He did what he came to do. And by Christ, we are forgiven our sins and conquer death ourselves. He gives life to those who trust in him that can never be taken away. We will not perish, but have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Monday night, I had a dream. Whenever you say that, it almost sounds like Martin Luther King. No, it's not, not I have a vision, the dream of the future. I actually had a dream. And in this dream, I was uh, going to have a debate with an actor who in this dream was an atheist. I don't know if this actor is an atheist or a man of faith. I really don't know. But before we put his, uh, I don't know if you put his picture up on the screen yet. Don't do it yet. Don't do it yet. I want to ask you, do you know an actor that, both, that played both Jesus and Lucifer in lead roles? That's the trivia question. Now, we give you a moment to think about it. I doubt that anybody would get this uh, trivia question. If you did, be honest. Text me later. I'm interested if you're that good at, at movie and uh, play uh, trivia. The actor is Victor Garber. Now you can put him up. You might not recognize his name, but he's a great actor. He's uh, on a lot of, uh, in a lot of plays, Broadway plays and in movies. At the beginning of his career, he played Jesus in Godspell. 
And later in his life, in 1994-95, uh, he played Lucifer in the Broadway play that I euphemistically call by the name Darn Yankees. Mary and I had the privilege of going to New York and, and visiting with Tim and Kathy Keller, and we went uh, with, uh, with them, with one of their sons. They'd already seen this play. One of their sons took us down to Broadway, and we saw, uh, we, we saw this uh, play and Victor Garber playing Lucifer in it, which is why... I think in my dream, I was debating this actor. I was debating somebody I'd seen play Lucifer. And it was like in the big lawn at, at UVA, it was an important debate, and I was above uh, my head in, in, uh, in this debate. And I was supposed to be presenting the case for Christianity, and he would be presenting the case against Christianity. And in my dream, I began to think, how do I begin? How do I start? And what came to mind, what I planned to do in the dream as we arrived and sat down in front of this uh, uh, campus crowd, there was no social distancing. It wasn't that integrated into what's going on. I thought, I need to tell the crowd that they are not neutral in, uh, in listening to this debate. I presumed that most of them on the university campus uh, would be committed against Christ, that have their eyes spiritually shut to him, because that's the way we're born. Some in the crowd might be uh, committed to Christ, that God had touched their hearts and given them, uh, raised them to life, raised them to faith, so that they would be for and praying for me as I would present this. But it's not a neutral crowd. None of us are neutral. And then I anticipated him uh, saying, well, you Christians just believe in superstitions, and it's just uh, you don't believe in science. You resist science. We've been hearing that uh, a lot. I've been seeing that how Christians are res resisting the science about the coronavirus. Perhaps that's why that uh, fed in there. That's not true. For the most part, Christians and Christian leaders have been uh, respecting and embracing uh, the recommendations of uh, our, our authorities, recognizing this is a dangerous thing. And as the science comes in, we listen. We're eager to know and to embrace it. That's why I read our response to the coronavirus. Uh, it wasn't just ad hoc, but I want you to know that we as Christians respect as an act of love for one another what our authorities are recommending in social distance. But I anticipated he'd be saying, you resist uh, science. We know now where we came from. We came from, from slime and developed through evolution into the human beings that we are. And I was ready to respond. Now, by saying, the problem is you can't account for the origin of things. You are committed, you are committed to a naturalistic worldview. Therefore, you rule out God as superstition. So any evidence of God, you would rule out as being superstition. And then I pictured him coming back for that. And, and I thought, well, the next argument, well, this is all in my dream. Uh, if the next thing would be the moral argument. And said, now, how can you think that I'm wrong for believing what I believe if you don't believe in right and wrong. Lions don't go around worrying about right and wrong. They just eat the antelope. But we have a conscience. We have a sense of right and wrong. How can you say that Hitler and his Nazism was horrific and wrong if you don't believe in right and wrong? So I was ready to go there. And then I woke up. And I realized it was just a dream. But I realized that perhaps what set it up was, 
being immersed in the Gospel of John, that the crowd was not neutral in response to Jesus. Those who were there, who saw his miracles, were so committed against Christ that they shut their eyes deliberately. They would not see what was right before them. Thus, the title of this message is Spiritual Blindness, Committed Against Christ, Don't Confuse Me with the Facts. Now, you might think, well, that's 2,000 years ago. It's harder for us to see. It's harder for us to say that the evidence is right before us. But go back and realize what, is, is, uh, what transpired in this chapter and ask yourself, if you're listening to this and you don't know Christ and you're just curious, you've been, uh, been cruising around and, and looking into things, you're tired of being alone, socially isolated at home, and, and you're, you're checking in, Ask yourself, just so that you can be fair about how you're evaluating the testimony of Scripture, are you committed against Christ? Mary's been reading a book called Heaven Without Her by Kitty Foth Regner. And uh, we can go to that slide. There are a couple of uh, quotations from this book. Kitty, Roth, uh, Kitty Foth Regner was a 47-year-old unbeliever but her mother was a believer, and her mother was 87 years old, having been in the nursing home for eight years, and she was passing away, and you know, Kitty had rejected her mother's faith. But at the deathbed, she said uh, to her mother, it's okay, you can let go. She said she said that just because it was what you're supposed to say. And she was just in turmoil inside. And the next thing she thought of saying, she was, she was scrambling to think what to say, was, it's, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Don't worry about me. She said that because you're supposed to say that. She's heard you're supposed to say that. And then as she scrambled uh, more, she said, finally, as she was scrambling, she said, I'll see you there, Mom. And what she said shook her. She walked away. She walked out of that room because she couldn't, she couldn't just stay there and face death. She had no hope to face death. But she realized that according to what she believed, her mother would not know that she couldn't keep her promise. But it haunted her. And she began a journey of studying to keep her promise to her mother that if it's any possibility that the Christian claims are true. She owed it to her mother out of that promise to investigate. And she investigated scientific, historical, prophetic evidences for the supernatural. She scrutinized the kaleidoscope of worldviews from Hinduism to the New Age and finally found the answers in biblical Christianity. She became a Christian and she was sharing with a friend who was in the place that she had once been, who was a committed skeptic, and she shared with her a couple of her favorite quotes that she had discovered in her search. Uh, the first one is from uh, a quote from Richard Lewontin, an evolutionist who wrote in the January 9, 1997 issue of the New York Review, we take the side of science in spite of the, the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. 
in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. She gives a second quote from Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. And this one's my favorite. She says the first one's hers. This is her second favorite. This is my favorite. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assured that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. What did he mean by that? Next slide. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We want to do what we want to do. An acknowledgement of God interferes with that. We begin, we're born with a commitment to ourselves and our way. That's the stony heart that God needs to address and take away to give us a heart of flesh that would respond to him. If you admit that you begin, as did Richard Lewontin, with the commitment, at least you're evaluating your response a little bit more objectively. For those of you that are Christians and you have a commitment to Christ, you need to recognize that the old nature is not dead within you. We are to daily put off that old nature. So if you're becoming uh, a little bit spiritually distant, if you're growing uh, weak and cold because of this uh, trial, if you are on the wane, you need to say no to self, deny self, and turn to Christ and listen to him. Now let's walk through this passage and see how Jesus did this astounding miracle that illustrates uh, quite graphically the issue of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. The evidence is right before the Pharisees when they interrogate this blind man, their objections become humorously ludicrous because they're denying the evidence right before them. And then we see the faith of the man born blind. In chapter 9, verse 1, as he went along, Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a huge question right there. They should have uh, read more of the, what they already had in the scriptures. They should have been familiar with the book of Job. The book of Job is all about how Job's sufferings were not due to his sin. God was allowing Satan to afflict Job in all sorts of ways, taking away everything he had, even his health, so that Job could prove before all the heavenly hosts that Job loved God, not just the blessings God would give him. 
This is the test of our day and time. And we might ask, why is this coronavirus happening to us? Is it God's judgment upon sin? In a general sense, it is because we live in a fallen world, a broken world that was broken by sin in the first place. That's the natural evil that I referred to before in those bullet points that I read to you. But in terms of a direct personal sense, this is rain that falls on the just and the unjust. We share God's blessing in this fallen world. Even Hitler enjoyed a good meal. He didn't deserve anything. What we all deserve is hell. He enjoyed blessings from God in a, in a sense. And we all suffer the common ills that we live, have living in the fallen world because our first parents broke it by their sin. It's not people's direct and personal sin. It's not a nation's direct and personal sin that is causing this. It's because we live in a fallen world where there is disease and pestilence. And it's a reminder from God of our mortality so that we ask the big questions about him, about life beyond, about our accountability to him. This is not happening because either this man or his parents sinned. But in order that God's, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus being the light of the world is a theme from the beginning of John in chapter 1. He applies it here in this sense. While he is with his disciples, he is the light in the world. And while he is with them, he is doing this work. And the man was born blind so that Jesus might display his power to give sight. And that God's work would be displayed in his life. I pray that in the context of this difficulty that we're facing that we would at least say, we would at least know this, that God has allowed this into our lives, that his work would be displayed in our lives. Is it being displayed in your life? Let that call call you to faith, and if you are a follower of Christ, call you to put off the old self and to embrace Christ and follow him today in the midst of this. Having said this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. We can ask the question, why did Jesus go to the, the trouble to spit on the ground, make some mud with saliva? The, the Bible doesn't give us the answers to that. Jesus could have spoken the word and the man's sight been restored. He didn't have to do it this way. There's another miracle where Jesus doesn't even go to the home. He just says the word from a distance. And the, the person is healed back in the home. And the man who asked Jesus for the healing on his way home is told by the servants, he's, well, it, the miracle happened and he inquired, what time was it? It was exactly when Jesus said that he would be healed. So Jesus didn't have to do this. Why did he do it? I think it's a special Grace, all of this is speculation. For a man who's blind, who's so cut off from the world, he experienced the very touch of Jesus. And it also gave him opportunity to show his faith in Jesus by obeying. Jesus said, go and wash in the pool. And by the man doing that, he was expressing his faith in Jesus. He believed that Jesus was doing something. 
So he went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. Why would they say that? It's because this kind of thing doesn't happen. We're committed to a naturalistic worldview. That's the way we are. So some couldn't believe the evidence right before them right at, at first, even in the crowds. So he, they had a reasonable, plausible explanation. Oh, this, he only looks like him. But the man himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. That's the question of the hour. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. It's interesting how little this man knew, but the touch of Jesus. And in his obedience and faith in Jesus, he went and washed, and he experienced this this miracle where he who had been blind could now see, and that's about all he knew. He didn't know where Jesus was. In this case, he did know that it was Jesus that did it. So the next step is the interrogation by the Pharisees of this man born blind. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. This is the first time that's mentioned. I mean, consider the beggar who's blind, sitting at the gates, begging for his survival. And Jesus comes up and heals him by uh, touching his eyes, making the mud, placing on the eyes, giving him opportunity for obedience. What's important to the man? Is he thinking, oh, this is the Sabbath. He shouldn't do this on the Sabbath. It's not important until you get before the Pharisees. And it's, then it's noted this miracle happened on the Pharisees. Therefore... The Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, the question of the hour. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Now the Pharisees had visually, physically, this man standing before him. The testimony of the crowd that at least many in the crowd were saying, this is the beggar who was born blind, but the Pharisees couldn't believe it. They knew something about Jesus that enabled them to dismiss Jesus. Why? Because the evidence led them to dismiss him? No, because it was a prior commitment. They were committed against Jesus. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. We've been over a miracle before where uh, this happened and the Pharisees objected to him. But others, others of the Pharisees, including Nicodemus, at least we know by name, asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Oh, he's more than a prophet. The man doesn't know this yet. He is growing in his faith and trust in Jesus, but at least he knows he's from God because he's experienced the touch of God in this healing the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and they received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. They're scrambling in their commitment against Jesus to find evidence to disprove this miracle. The parents will know and to be able to say, this just looks like our son. They asked, is this your son? 
Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, up to this point, if that's all we had, that could be a good faith answer. I mean, this has just happened. We don't know how many minutes later, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later, uh, the parents weren't with him when it happened. And so they're called, they're summoned, and they don't know anything about it. All they know is this is our son. But we don't know how he can see. We could read it in good faith, but the Bible goes further and tells us more about their heart, their motives. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews, now they're all Jews. When it says the Jews like this, it's the leaders of the Jews and those who had followed the leadership of the Pharisees. The whole group is Jews, including the man born blind, including the parents. So it refers to the Jews in this way. It's talking about the Pharisees and those who had followed their lead. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Whoops, in that parenting class, they just flunked, didn't they? They threw their son under the bus. They wanted to stay in the synagogue. Ah, there's an exposure of our our sinful nature right there. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. This is a catch-22. Either give glory to God and denounce Jesus as a sinner, or praise Jesus and you're not giving glory to God. That was the the options, those were the options they put before this man. And the man is brilliant. God was blessing him with wisdom beyond his, his education. He had been born blind. But he had sat at the temple courts. He had been out there in the streets. He heard a lot. And he didn't mean that he was dumb because he was blind. Stupid dumb, not blind and dumb in terms of speaking. He was thoughtful. And he said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He did not fall into their trap. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this is where this passage gets really humorous. It gets funny in a kind of ironic, serious way. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? He just sticks it to them. It's like he's exposing their commitment against Christ. When they ask him again, he's saying, it's right before you. I've told you already. Now you have evidence that I was the man and that I am the man who was born blind. I can now see. I've been telling you that he put mud on my eyes. I went and washed, and then I could see, I've told you, and you're shutting your eyes to it spiritually. You won't accept it because you're committed against Christ. He's sticking it to them in this this human way. Do you want to become his disciples too? They can't answer that. They just get mad. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, 
We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Do you see how this just drips with, with a, a kind of a, 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 an irony, a, 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 almost a sarcasm? That, that's remarkable. You're the leaders who would lead us to God, you profess, who would tell us how to obey God, you profess. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And then he gives these Pharisees a theology lesson, one they should have already known. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Absolutely true. Absolutely right. But they cannot see the evidence right before them. And because they can't, they go for the personal attack. They can't dispute the argument. They can't dispute the evidence. So they just go on the personal attack. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And see, if you begin with a commitment against Christ, none of the evidence that Christ came into the world, that he lived, that he did these things, that he died, that he rose again, evidence which is is contemporaneous evidence. Witnesses who saw it first generation, they saw it firsthand. They gave their lives uh, for the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and when people would, would reject Jesus, they rejected these disciples. They weren't over time developing a legend that we could go back to like King Arthur that nobody can go back and see. They were firsthand witnesses who gave their lives for the truth that they knew. But in spite of all of that evidence, people say, I want to do what I want to do. If the world has meaning, Christian meaning, biblical meaning, that means there's a God to whom I give account. And that means I'm a sinner and that I can't do what I want to do. I need a Savior. I need to surrender to Christ and follow him. But I don't want that. So they just go angry. That's where persecution comes from. We're not there in our culture. I think that Christians in our culture, there's conflict between Christians and non-Christians. You hear ridicule. You hear disparaging things. We should praise God for the freedoms that we have, respect our authorities, and just love our enemies even. Don't go with that kind of antagonistic, rebellious attitude that we're martyrs and everybody's against us and it justifies our own sense of, of reaction against people. Our Savior calls us to love our enemies. We should be peacemakers. We should be respectful. We should be cooperating. We should not do the things that warrant people heaping scorn on us. We should love them with the love of Christ. But if you're listening to this, and this is catching you, it's, it's captivating you, is that not the work of God? The first work of God, of the work of the Holy Spirit, is to convict us of our sin and our need of a Savior. Then we can appreciate the love of God demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So in the concluding section of this chapter, we find the blind man coming to faith fully in Jesus. He's been drawn to Christ. He knew the healing touch of Christ. But Jesus seeks him out. In verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him, the blind man, out of the synagogue. And when he found him, he said, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a title from the book of Daniel that expresses the incarnation of God himself, one who comes from the, the Ancient of Days, from the, the throne of the Ancient of Days, who comes like a Son of Man to us. This is the Messiah, God visiting us like a Son of Man. It's not just a statement of Jesus' hum humanity. He's claiming deity to be that Messiah come, promised in Daniel. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. Oh, just pause on that. This is a man who had been blind all along, and now he's actually looking at God become like a son of man who has touched him and healed him and is opening his spiritual eyes. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. An act of worship is an act of surrender. It's the turning from not my way, but thine be done. I am yours. I am not my own. I am bought with the price, as the Heidelberg Catechism uh, expressed. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This last verse is a little bit of a difficult one because it might sound like, well, if you don't know, then you're not guilty, and there are other ways to God as long as you don't know. It's more like a saying, like, if you could go to the moon, you'd discover it's not made of cheese. That doesn't imply that you can go to the moon. It's just, if you could. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty. The book of Romans in the first two chapters says, we all have enough light from the light of creation and the light of our conscience, God's law written on our hearts, to know that there is a God and that we ought to glorify him and give thanks to him, but we don't. Therefore, without, we are without excuse. We all have enough light to be without excuse. So Jesus is stating a hypothetical. If you were, if you were really blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But nobody's really blind. We all know enough to be without excuse, to know we're fighting against God. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I come back to our first question. How do you enter this service? Are you committed to Christ? Or are you committed against him? Are you committed to him but allowing that old nature to come up and just create all sorts of doubts and quandaries and, and you, still, you just want, your, you want to follow Christ, you want to go to heaven, but you want to have your way? Put to death that old nature. You haven't come to Christ yet, but this is disturbing you. Then I would call you to recognize commitment against Christ leads to death, eternal death. But commitment to Christ is an act of surrender, and it leads to life. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Our motto is that we are committed to Christ and his word. Committed to Christ and his word. We want people to know Christ personally, to grow up, to mature spiritually, to build community and to show God's love faithfully. That's what we're all about. And so if you're listening and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
God, we call you to open your eyes. Pray that God would do that work in your life, that you would be able to see Jesus, who he is for what he is, and turn to him as your Savior. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, to express this beginning kind of faith, we first need to admit that we're sinners, that we have been, that we were born committed against Christ. We're committed to ourselves in our way. We admit our sin. But we do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And if never before, for anyone who is listening, you can pray, I do now receive you as my Savior and my Lord. And my hope is in you alone for the forgiveness of my sins. Father, we thank you that you do the work of opening our spiritual eyes and drawing us to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and reconciling us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.